As Joel said, we're going to be looking at Genesis 14 together. As we look at Genesis 14, we see that we're just continuing in our series on Genesis. And as we've been doing over the past few weeks, we're going to be continuing it by looking at the life of Abram together. Abram, who would become Abraham. And as we've looked at it so far, you might be noticing that as the stories have gone on, there's kind of a pattern that is common to each story that we've seen. And that pattern is that in each section, there's an obstacle that comes up that brings doubt for Abram about how exactly God is going to fulfill his promises. And then each time, there's a resolution and an advance of the promises that God makes to Abram. So, in Genesis 12, Abram goes to the land God told him to go to, but now there's a famine. So, he flees to Egypt, where he's overtaken by fear for his life. And we see this resolve when God makes good on his promise to protect Abram, and he brings him out of Egypt even wealthier than when he had entered. But then in Genesis 13, now Abram's in the land, but there's family strife because there is seemingly not enough room for both Abram and Lot. And this resolves with Lot moving east towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And there God further reveals his promise to Abram. He tells him, not only have I told you to go to the land, but this land that you are dwelling in right now, I will give to you and your offspring forever. He even tells Abram to walk through the length and breadth of the land to see what God was promising. But as we come to Genesis 14, we see right away that there's another problem. Because the land that God's promised to Abram is not empty at all. In fact, it's a land that is filled with kings. The word king in the passage we're going to read today is used 28 times in 24 verses. So the question for us today is how will Abram inherit the land God promised when it's full of kings? So let's look at this passage together. Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they, have ser- they had served Kedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriatham, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, 
And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and their share of the men who went and the share of the men who went with me. Let honor Eskel and Mamre take their share. Would you pray with me together? Father, as we come before this text, there's there's so many different names and places that are just unfamiliar to us. There's so much going on here. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we study this text to see not only what it means, but Lord, how you reveal yourself in it, how you reveal how we ought to walk in it, and that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would be truly transformed by understanding who you are and understanding your word. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's a lot going on in this chapter. But if we take it as a whole we can see that there's really three major categories that really dominate the text. There's a lot of talk about kings, there's a lot of talk about land, and there's a lot of talk about possessions. And in the end of the passage, it intentionally sets up for us a contrast between how the kings of the land surrounding Abram related to these things and how Abram and the king Melchizedek treated them. You see, how we view what we have fundamentally changes how we relate to it. If you're doubting that this is true, just remember how drastically your view of toilet paper changed between January 2020 and May 2020. So in January, 
if anybody asked you if they could borrow a roll of toilet paper, you had no problem lending it out. And I doubt that there was anybody in your life that was asking. But by May, you were trying hard not to become a hoarder. You were grabbing it anytime you saw it at the grocery store. I happen to know of a certain church member who courageously drove all the way to Downingtown, Pennsylvania, just to drop off a big box of toilet paper for her daughter and family that she found at BJ's in the area. Oh, the things that Flossie Calhoun will do for her children. (laughs) So at its core, this passage reveals to us how faith in God changes the way we relate to what we have. And as we study this passage, here's the main point that we're going to see together. Knowing God as the giver of all we have frees us to worship him with all we receive. Let's say that again. Knowing God as the giver of all we have frees us to worship him with all we receive. So what does this passage show us about how we view what we've been given? Let's dive in and look at the first 12 uh, verses together, which we see the rebellion of kings. So if we take the text and we look at the first two verses, they give us a quick context of what's going on in the land surrounding Abram. But as we read them, it's so easy to get lost right from the start. Because in just two verses, they mention nine different kings and nine different places, and a lot of them are difficult for us to pronounce. So to avoid getting caught up and sidetracked by all the names and places, let's set them aside for a second, and let's take an overview of what's going on in these first 12 verses. So it starts by describing how 14 years ago there was a war between two groups of kings in the area. The kings in the northeast, represented by Kedor Laomer, the king of Elam, and the kings in the south, represented by Bera, king of Sodom. And the southern group of kings are located just on the other side of the Salt Sea from where Abram is now. So the southern kings go to war with the northeastern kings, and they're defeated. And in their defeat, they're forced to serve the northeastern kings. And they do this for 12 years. But finally, they've had enough, and they rebel. Now, when the northeastern kings come down to squash the rebellion, the results are devastating for the entire area. Before even addressing the southern kings, they go around and defeat six six different cities and people groups surrounding the southern kings, which is effectively cutting these kings off from any hope of help from their neighbors. It's worth noting that some of these groups, the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim, later biblical texts indicate that some of the people that lived in those areas were giants. So this northeastern army is powerful, it's formidable. And by the time they do battle with the southern kings, it seems like the southern kings don't stand a chance. There's not even a mention of how the battle goes, just what happens as the southern kings and their army are, def- are, are, are fleeing. So they go to battle, they're defeated, and what's left of the army is left scattered and fleeing to the hills. Now, all the southern cities are defenseless. And the northeastern kings come and they sack Sodom and Gomorrah. They take all the wealth, all the provisions, and even some of the people in these cities. And among the people that were taken were Lot and his family. So, now that we have an idea of what's going on, the question is, why is there all this detail? 
Why all the repetition of kings and places? And why are certain places that are named, their names then get clarified? Like in verse 2, it talks about the king of Bela, that is Zor. Or in verse 7, it talks about En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. See, for you and I, these details seem cumbersome and virtually meaningless. However, I believe that these details give us an important clue into the significance of this section. Because the original recipients of the book of Genesis were the Israelites in the time of Moses. They're traveling through the wilderness in some of the very places that are being mentioned in this passage. When we understand this, our narrative reads like we have a tour guide standing at the hill overlooking Gettysburg, pointing out the different areas where different parts of the battle took place. But there's more to it. Because the Israelites would have been familiar with many of these people groups and their histories because this is the land God promised to Israel. Think about it. You can't give what you don't own. Which means, ultimately, God is sovereignly in control of who is living in this land. But in this passage, the land is not the Israelites. It's filled with violence. The sin of Cain, who murdered his brother, has gone mainstream and it's consuming everyone in the land. Kings clamoring against one another, plundering to gain power over one another, and all along pulling everyone around them into the conflict. Those not directly participating are getting caught up in the crossfire. When we consider these things together, I can't help but think that our world today is more like what is described in this passage than we might realize. Think about it. Is there a nation that exists today that is innocent from a history of conflict, violence, and injustice against other nations or peoples? When I was younger, I loved to read about wars and I thought that I wanted to be a historian. But I don't think I'll ever forget when I was about 12, reading a book on trench warfare during World War II and the horrors and the reality of war struck me in a way that I had never experienced before. And it began to sober me and to affect my perspective as I thought about these things. See, friends, we live in a world where at any given moment there is war, there is conflict, there is violence in perpetual cycle. What is wrong with the world? The Bible claims that underneath all of its problems, the core of what is wrong with the world is that we are in rebellion against our creator. The prevalence of war and conflict is a direct result of this rebellion. Consider the passage before us in light of Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The, king, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Friends, the conflict that we see before us in this passage is a prime example of the rebellion that Psalm 2 is talking about. Now the question is, will Abram be any different? Let's find out through the next section, the rescue of Lot. Before we dive on into this section, let's take a second and zero in on Lot's, farts, uh, on Lot's fate so far. Let's read verse 11 
again. It says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Nothing in the text tells us that Lot was in any way involved in the conflict, except that he had the misfortune of residing within the city of Sodom. He's not responsible for it, but he and his family are swept up in it. The commentator R. Kent Hughes, in speaking of the section, challenges us to read between the lines. Because in ancient times, when a king conquered and sacked a town like this, the results were barbaric. People in the city would have likely been murdered. Women would have likely been taken advantage of. Homes and stores torched. What's more, now Lot and his family are being taken away to who knows where. What would happen to Lot? What would happen to his family? What would happen to his wife and daughters? There's no reason for him to hope. He has nothing. Everything has been taken away from him. But here we see a glimmer of hope for Lot because someone escapes and comes to Abram. Now, what would you expect Abram to do upon hearing this news? Remember in Genesis 13, Lot and Abram's relationship was not on the best terms. Their servants were in conflict with one another as the space they shared was crowded. And when Abram deferred to Lot to pick the land where he would live, Lot chose seemingly the choicest portion for himself. And consider the army that's taken Lot and his family. They just systematically defeated almost the entire surrounding area, including giants, and left Abram alone. Abram could have easily mourned Lot's fate, but recognized that it was Lot's own actions that brought him here. But look at how Abram responds to the news in verse 14 through 16. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Upon hearing the news, Abram's response is to send forth a rescue mission. He gathers together his trusted and trained men in his household and himself goes in pursuit. It tells us that he traveled as far as Dan, which is somewhere around 120 miles from where Abram was located. So think about this. In 2019, a man named Zach Bitter beat the world record for the 100-mile run by running it in 11 hours and 19 minutes on a track. These guys ran this distance cross-country with weapons, and by the, at, where, by the time they arrived where they needed to go, they had to come ready for battle. This is a dramatic event. It's harrowing. It's the stuff of movies. And what's even more striking is how Abram's actions in this passage are actually in complete contrast to what we've seen of Abram himself so far. Think about just two weeks ago when we looked at Genesis 12, 10 through 20 together, when Abram fled to Egypt during the famine in the land. And once he gets to Egypt, he first lies and then gives his wife to another man to save his own life. In Genesis 12, Abram puts his own wife in harm's way to save his own skin. But 
here in Genesis 14, he puts himself in harm's way to save and rescue his kinsmen. What can explain this change? Friends, I believe that the explanation here is this. He has grown. He's not stuck in his failures, but instead he's developed a stronger trust in God than he had previously. God has promised to bless him and give him this land, and rather than fearing for his life, he courageously goes forward trusting that God will preserve him and see the promise fulfilled. Consider the words of R. Kent Hughes on this. The decisive and courageous warrior at Mamre has done a complete about-face from the duplicitous and cowardly husband in Egypt. The man of faith is not shackled by his past failures, but saved from them. I'm going to say that again. The man of faith is not shackled by his past failures, but saved from them. Friends, there is great hope in these words for us today. They remind us that our relationship with Christ fundamentally changes how we relate to our own sins and failures. So often, we relate to our past sins and failures as stains that can't be removed. We're trapped in a perpetual cycle of condemnation as we view God through the lens of what our actions deserve rather than who He is. And who is God? He is a God who rescues us. I cannot help but look at what Abram does in this section and think of the Christ-like character Abram displays. Listen, Christ not only risked, but gave up his life so that you and I could be rescued from the fate of our sin. This act was his victory, victory over sin and death. And so we can say with the psalmist, that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Abram's faith has freed him to a new level of courage. He's not only rescued his nephew, but he's gone up against the mighty kings of the land, and he's won. But what we're going to see now is that the story here is far from over. And the next section of this passage bring into clear focus the fundamental difference that Abram's faith will make on how he views his own success. We're going to see this in the interaction between, that he has between two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. So let's look at verse 17 through 24 together at the, ref- the return of Abram. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me. Let Honor, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. As Abram is returning, the defeated king of Sodom goes out to meet him. But they're joined by another king, previously unmentioned, who also meets them. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who is described as the priest of God Most High. And the contrast between how these two kings relate to Abram and his victory could not be more striking. For one thing, how they approach Abram is striking. The king of Sodom went out to meet him, which mirrors the text so far and how it's dealt with kings going out to war. There's a flavor of confrontation here. And he comes out empty-handed. In contrast, the king of Salem brought out bread and wine. There's an open-handed generosity. He brings out a meal from his own supplies for them to share. For another thing, how they speak to Abram is striking. The king of Sodom makes demands without any word of thanks or congratulations for Abram's victory, whereas the king of Salem blesses Abram, quickly attributing his victory to God. Lastly, look at how each of them relate to possessions in this passage. The king of Salem views the possessions, including people, as property to be negotiated and kept for yourself. Whereas the king of Salem declares that the most high God is the possessor of heaven and earth. So Abram here is faced with two completely different assumptions about his victory. One that assumes Abram is both the cause of his victory and the sole possessor of all the plunder. Another assumes that God is the cause of Abram's success and ultimately the possessor of all of it. So, whose interpretation of this event will Abram go with? Whose side is Abram on? Abram's response here makes it clear that he sees God behind his victory. We see this first in his response to Melchizedek's blessing. He gives Melchizedek a tithe or a tenth of the goods. This would have been recognized as an affirmation of what Melchizedek's blessing represented. That Abram agrees that it was God who was the one who was responsible for his victory. But there's more than that. Because in ancient cultures, Abram receiving a blessing and giving a tithe would have meant that Abram was recognizing that the king of Salem was greater than himself. And if that wasn't indication enough, we see also in his response to the king of Sodom. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. It says, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram's response here shows that he will not take hold of the land for himself. 
which is what the king of Sodom expected. But instead, he will wait for God to give what he had promised in the way and the time that God would choose. Between the king of Sodom and Abram, we, have, we see that there are two fundamentally different ways of relating to what we have. The way of the king of Sodom looks like this. What we have is for ourselves. We get it when we take it from others by any means necessary and hold on to it at all costs. Here we have him empty-handed and defeated, clawing for whatever scrap or leverage he can get. But in Abram's response, we see that Abram sees God as the possessor of heaven and earth. And therefore, whatever Abram has is a gift from God. If what he has is given by God, that means Abram is free to obey God and trust that God will provide. The fruit of this is that he is free to be generous with what he has. Friends, what are areas in your life that you are most aware of the gaps between what you desire and what you have. Where you are most tempted to be anxious. Where you are most tempted to take for yourself in a way that you know would not honor the Lord. This passage here encourages us this morning to trust God in these gaps. To seek Him and trust Him that He will provide for all that we need. To see that having a big vision of who God is will fuel our faith and lead to increasing obedience to him and generosity to others. It is here that we will be able to sing with Psalm 4-7, you have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. Now, there's one last part of this text that we need to consider. And that's to consider the person of Melchizedek. So let's take a look again at verses 18 through 20. We need to take a closer look at this mysterious figure introduced at the very end of this passage, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Who in the world is he? A study of Genesis up to this point gives us no help because there's no mention of him his ancestors, or the city of Salem anywhere. And what's more, there's no mention of him or Salem in Genesis after this either. Now, to go in depth about Melchizedek would be a sermon unto itself. But we're going to take a few minutes and look at what this passage tells us, what others have speculated about him throughout history, and what the rest of the Bible reveals about him. So what can we know about Melchizedek from this passage? Well, we know that in addition to being a king, he's also a priest. Now, it's important to note at this point that in the history of this time period, it was not uncommon for a Canaanite king to also be a priest. But it's notable here for a couple reasons. First, because this is the first priest ever mentioned in the Bible. What does a priest do? At the most basic level, a priest mediates between their God and the people. Hence, his blessing of Abram. But Melchizedek's priesthood is notable as well because 
it says that he was the priest of God Most High. This God Most High, he recognizes as the possessor of heaven and earth. And when Abram speaks of God, he also calls God the possessor of heaven and earth. But he adds a name to the title. He calls God the Lord, literally Jehovah, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, indicating that the God Melchizedek attributes the victory to is the very God that has revealed himself to Abram. The other thing that we can know about Melchizedek from this passage is what his name means and what the name of his city means. And, and both things are also notable because the meaning of Melchizedek is the king is righteous or my king is righteous. And the name of the city is Salem, which means peace. And both the rabbinic and Christian traditions mostly agree that it's highly likely that he is the king of the city that would become Jerusalem, the capital city of the people of Israel. So, in a nutshell, we have Abram bowing to the righteous king of peace, who is the priest of God Most High. I love the way the commentator Von Rod puts it when he says, Abram bows only to Melchizedek in a story filled with kings. Now, throughout the centuries, many people have looked at this passage and speculated about who Melchizedek really was. Some sects of Judaism thought he was Shem, somehow having lived an abnormally long life. Others speculated that he was an angel, perhaps even the archangel Michael. In the Christian tradition, there are some that would argue that he's a Christophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ, rather than an actual historical figure. Now, in the rest of the Bible, there's really only two other places that even mention Melchizedek. One is in Psalm 110, and the other is Hebrews 6 and 7. Hebrews 7 deals with Melchizedek in most detail, and the main thrust of Hebrews 7 is to show how the priesthood of Christ is far superior to the Levitical priesthood of the Israelites, and he uses Melchizedek as a type for the priesthood of Christ. Let's look at how Hebrews 7 talks about Melchizedek. It says about Melchizedek, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither the beginning of, beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now, it seems that the author of Hebrews is not saying that Melchizedek is some type of Christophany, but rather he's comparing how Melchizedek is represented in the narrative of Genesis 14 and how that resembles Christ's priesthood. I'm happy to talk after the sermon about why I think that is, but the point that Hebrews is making here is that though the Levitical priesthood was temporary, with priests serving only 30 years, Christ has no term limit on his priesthood, which means that he can eternally live as mediator between God and man. There's so much here, and I highly recommend that you look into this for yourself. 
But the important thing to draw out for us today is how Melchizedek's function in this story is that it causes us to look to a greater priest king. Melchizedek in this text is the king whose name means righteous, but is unable to make the kings around him righteous. Jesus Christ is the righteous one who gives his righteousness to us. As Romans 5.19 tells us, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Melchizedek rules the land named peace, but he is unable to bring peace even to the area around him. Jesus Christ brings peace by reconciling us to God. Jesus Christ's kingdom will bring an everlasting peace to the world. And so Isaiah 9 declares of Christ, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Ever Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus Christ is our righteous king of peace who brings out the bread and wine of his own body and blood to give us his righteousness and bring us peace with God. Amen. Friends, as we conclude today, let us be grateful for the example that God has given us for what walking in faith looks like. And let us not forget that Abram's faith is only remarkable because he put his trust in the one who was able to do all he promised. What greater proof do we have of God's ability to do what he promised? than of sending our Savior, Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, the eternal king, the once and for all sacrifice that brings us peace.